welcome to MonarchCast. Today, we are talking about queens losing their heads. I'm Allie. I'm Claire. And we're continuing on this series of violently deposed monarchs, as in deposed by killing. Um, And I think we're finally getting to maybe one of the most famous examples today. Yes. Um, I think when you think of deposing a monarch, beheading a monarch, you think of Marie Antoinette. Which is a little strange because she's not exactly, she wasn't the ruling monarch. No, but we'll get to it, but Louis is like barely worth a mention. (laughs) Maybe that was the problem. (laughs) That was one of the many, many, many problems. Yes, definitely. But yes, as We've said we're talking about Marie Antoinette. Um, I listened to a 20-hour audiobook, which in hindsight, I'm not sure I would do that again. You know, the thing about an audiobook is that you you can't... Have to pay um, attention? There's th- That's a big problem, actually. Zoning out was a really big problem. Um, also, I read faster than they're reading it out loud. Mm. So I felt like... I could have read it much faster if I had just read the book on my own. And I really missed being able to go back and find, like, bookmarks or, like, pieces of information. Oh, you yeah. You can't, like, tag it. Yeah. So I it was kind of like my first foray into the audiobook world, and I don't think – I don't think I'm going to be a fan of that. But – it, you know, it was useful. I just would get, you know, for the last two weeks, I would go into work, coming home from work, popping it on. Like, okay, next chapter. Uh, here we go. But anyway, before we get to that, um, I don't have a ton of gossip. I think it's just the usual. Um, what I wanted to highlight was, you know, we just came to the end of the year. It's the start of a new decade. So happy new year, everybody. I do happy think we, 20s. I do think we were intending to have this air earlier but I had to finish the book um but yes we're we're back into the roaring 20s let's all hope it doesn't end with a depression and a world war um yeah not to not to get um (laughs) you know not to get too historical on you there um but I thought it was interesting because towards the end of the year the British royal family came out with a few announcements um one was the Prince William is doing some kind of global climate initiative where um, they're going to award prizes to people who come up with innovative, idea- innovative ideas to combat climate change, which I think was kind of cool. And I think going into 2020, that's a really timely and um, useful cause to jump onto. Um, but also we saw a lot of social media engagement from Buckingham Palace and they also released a portrait of Queen Elizabeth, Prince Charles, Prince William and Prince George um, very clearly sending the message you know we're good we're here and we've got you covered for generations to come. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting because they just released a portrait like that just a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, but this one was clearly taken when they also did that um, thing with the pudding, like where they were making the Christmas puddings together. Right. And my favorite thing about that whole thing was 
that's clearly the reason why when they all went to the Queen's Christmas lunch, mm-hmm. um, the Cambridges took separate cars. Yep, yep. And everybody tried to make it this, like, big marital thing between William and Kate. Like, they can't even be in the same car together anymore. <laughs> and it turns out it's because the heirs had to go do a photo op. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, it's just, like, another thing where people are just gossiping and you're, like, they're just so clearly trying to make something out of nothing. Um, we well, that was after there the, was like the video of Kate shrugging off William's arm yeah. in a video, and then the next day they all went to that Christmas luncheon. And I remember thinking, like, if if that was the news story out there, and they could have avoided taking separate cars, they would have. Right. It's just yeah. a lot of manufactured stuff. I mean, we won't even talk about what they did to the Sussex Christmas card, so. <laughs> which was actually really cute and they also released a photo of Harry and Archie which was very cute and apparently they are coming back to work tomorrow so we'll probably have some gossip to cover there for our next round um I think for 2020 we're just gonna see a continuation of 2019 it's gonna be piling on the Sussexes um we've talked a lot about you know should the royal family step up and do something about that? But honestly, I don't think that that's their focus. Their focus with Brexit happening, with this Prince Andrew debacle, I think when you see the release of that portrait, their focus is going to be zeroing in on future King Charles, future King William, future King George. Um, Prince Philip was notably very unwell over the holiday period. So I wouldn't be surprised if behind the scenes they're really preparing for a changing of the guard soon. Well, he's already retired. Yeah. I mean, my personal theory has always been if he goes, I, I don't know. I feel like, you know, when they say like when older couples, like one person dies, the other one follows really closely behind. It's not I like I just don't know if they have that kind of marriage. Well, and she, you know, she's not like your normal person. Like she has a lot a lot going on at the age of 93 that most people don't. Like for a lot of those situations, I feel like it's where a situation where they're retired, they're not doing anything else but keeping each other company. But Yeah, she's not going to die of loneliness. Like they live most of the time apart anyway. Right. Right. But I think it'll be interesting. You might see a step back. I don't know. I mean, Queen I think Victoria it will be symbolic seclusion. in a way or meaningful in a way that maybe might take some people by surprise because he is retired. He's what, like 98, like he's ancient. So his death isn't going to be some tragedy, but I think it is going to be the first death that really signals a change mm-hmm. in a way that um, his retirement doesn't. I mean, right. like nothing fundamentally will change if he were to die, but to have the Duke of Edinburgh die, it, I mean... It sends a really clear message, not to be morbid, but, like, that it's not going to be too long until the queen dies. Right. Although I did read his goals to make it to 100, so we've got a couple he's, more years. He could. I mean, he's, you know, still walking around, so. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. But anyway, I just, I thought that was really interesting to see that focus on the first day of the year was zeroing in on that continuity. Um. What was I? I was also, I read something about him. I don't remember what it was. I think it was in some sort of, it must have been some kind of pop culture thing or something, but they were talking about 
um, oh, I was, I know what it was. I was, I was rewatching, um, Four Weddings and a Funeral on Hulu. And you rewatched ta- that? I did. And oh, I, God, it was so bad the first time. I, you know, I actually liked it better the second time, but they were making comments about like, the immigration bill or something and then someone casually made a reference to the duke of edinburgh being an immigrant and i was like yeah he is so anyway that's a tangent but i was like what did i hear about him recently right i just think it's interesting you know i mean it's i think if brexit actually happens which it seems like it will um you know a lot of people are theorizing that it could lead to the um end of the United Kingdom with the issues with Scotland and Ireland. So I think the theme here we're seeing is this idea of like keeping the monarchy in the forefront, keeping the monarchy going because in a perfect segue, we don't want to see the fall of the monarchy a la Marie Antoinette and Louis the 16th. Although to be clear, if the British monarchy were to fall, it's unlikely anybody would have to be murdered to make that happen. Yeah, I don't think they'd be bringing back the guillotine, 100%. Um, they yeah. would just, you know, slink into the background and sit on top of their piles of money. It would be fine. And breathe a huge sigh, sigh of relief. <laughs> yeah, you know, some of them might not be that upset about it. Um, but it's, you know... Just to segue into our main topic of the day, you know, we are talking about Marie Antoinette, and I may have alluded to this when I talked about 20 hours Mm -hmm. of book, but this is a really difficult topic to cover. Um, I was telling Allie at the beginning, you know, a couple weeks ago, I said, I think I need more time because there's so much nuance here, and I'm never going to be able to cover it all, but what I was trying to get to was a point where I could sort of pull out the themes that I was noticing because I think when I think of the story of Marie Antoinette it's really comes down to more of like takeaways and the feeling that you get when you're looking at her story because I'm I'll tell you right now I am not going to get bogged down in dates names signposts of the French Revolution I think that's its own topic and frankly in the context of Marie Antoinette as she would probably tell you herself might be a bit boring but um she's difficult I mean there's a lot there you know she gets blamed for an entire revolution you know and her most famous her most famous quote is let them eat cake um but that that didn't even happen she never even said that did she did she say let them eat brioche she didn't even say that it was something like there's no bread. And she was like, oh, is there brioche? Like, basically was trying to say, like, what are you trying to say? Like, is there no bread or is there not a certain kind of bread? It was like a whole thing because there was like a grain shortage. And she was like trying to actually trying to help people. And it gets taken out of context and turned into something that she would never have said. She was incredibly charitable as a person. She cared about the poor. She would never have just flippantly said, oh, there's no bread. Well, let them eat cake. You know, it just, it never happened. Um, So I guess the question that we want to answer tonight is, what is it about this woman that inspires such vitriol? And that's a really hard question to answer. But I think my takeaway is she was certainly a victim of circumstance. 
um, a victim of the times that she lived in and a victim of the French court, which was like a beast that ate itself. I mean, it was just, you know, it's funny. We've done a lot of research about the English system and we talked about, um, Anne Boleyn surviving the French court. And we talked about Margaret of Anjou coming from the French court and not being able to fit in in England. But, you know, we talked about Charles, was it Charles the second? No, I'm sorry, Francis the second. Francis the first. Francis, yeah, sorry, Francis. Well, we talked about the French court, like, in his time was very, like, promiscuous. And, but, I mean, by the time of Marie Antoinette, the French court was an indescribable political abyss. It just, she was never going to succeed. So let's talk about who she was. Um, She's born in Austria. She's born Maria Antonia Josefa Johanna on November 2nd, 1755. She's an Archduchess of Austria by birth. She's the youngest daughter of Empress Maria Theresa and Francis I, who at the time was the Holy Roman Emperor. So but this is not the same Francis one we just mentioned. No, he's Francis I, Holy Roman Emperor. Right. Just I just want to clarify that because yeah. we just mentioned another Francis one. Oh, yeah. we're you know we're we're definitely going to go down that tunnel of everybody has the same name. So buckle up. Okay. Um, but she's a Habsburg, and we've talked about them. And so she gets, you know, born into all the power that comes with that. And she famously had the Habsburg jaw, although (laughs) I don't think as prominently as some of her male relatives. But I was reading in the book, like, every time she would have a portrait painted, she'd be like, oh, well, nothing to be done about that. (laughs) There it is. Um, You know, her mother had, I think, two or three sons. But, like, ten daughters. Her mother gave birth to 16 children. Wow. Um, and she's very close with her sisters, especially the younger ones who are close to her in age. Um, and once she became the Dauphine of France, um, she also becomes close with her mother because her mother never really took an interest in her until she became, like, a important. pretty important person. Um, so her mother's really interesting. I just want to take this as a side note. She ruled the House of Habsburg and all of its domains in her own right. And she's married to the Holy Roman Emperor, but he did not wear the pants in that marriage. She basically ruled the Holy Roman Empire for him, too. So she's a formidable woman. And, you know, shades of Elizabeth Woodville here. She has so many daughters and she would put Elizabeth Woodville to shame in the way that she arranged their marriages. So she just starts, you know, targeting. This is what the Habsburgs were famous for, was these marriage alliances. And she was no exception. One of Marie Antoinette's sisters was the uh, Queen of Naples. Another was um, married, the, I think, the King of Portugal, maybe. I forget, I forget exactly where they all ended up, but they all made very advantageous marriages. And then there were a couple of them that died. And one of them was, like, disfigured by smallpox. Another one was like um, physically disabled, so those two didn't marry. But for the most part, um, you know, they were being used as political pawns. And um, the biggest prize in this marriage journey was uh, France. So 
France and the Habsburgs, or we could just say Austria in this case, were longtime enemies. And this, you know, we talked about this with Francis. Um, remember when we talked about that Habsburg sandwich with Charles? Right. And, you know, it was like once Charles... the Habsburgs are the same, they're also related by marriage to the family ruling Spain. Yes. And remember once Charles became the Holy Roman Emperor, everybody was like, oh crap, because... It was the power of Spain, the power of the Habsburgs, and then he had the Holy Roman Empire. And France was kind of like stuck there in the middle. So this bad blood goes back generations. And at this point, um, France and Austria are like sworn enemies. And um, after the Seven Years' War, which I'm not going to go into, but all you need to know is that was like a global European conflict. All the big European powers were involved. The outcome of that at the end was that France and Austria decided to make an alliance, mostly to check the growing power of the United Kingdom and Prussia. You know, they kind of looked around and thought like, well, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Here, here's my daughter. You can have her in marriage. So it was decided that Maria Antonia would be a good match for Louis Auguste, who was the grandson and heir of King Louis XV of France. Um, so Louis the Fifteenth had a son that died. I'm mm-hmm. assuming. Yes, okay. and this is his son's son, the oldest surviving son of his son. Don't ask me his name. And so this is the heir to the King of France. So this is a big get, um, you know. And they, I think they had been kind of like targeting the family as like a potential alliance, especially after the end of the Seven Years' War and. It's funny because in the book that I was reading, you know, the education of Marie Antoinette, as she became known, was sort of severely neglected. So everybody thought she was like an idiot. But then they found out she just was completely uneducated. So they were sending these reports back to France. And they were like, yeah, yeah, she's very pretty. <laughs> you know, she'll, she'll do. But at the time she was like 13. I mean, she wasn't a fully formed person at all. And then once she was betrothed to Louis, her mother takes a much larger interest in her education and they start kind of like scrambling to prepare her to fill the role of Dauphine. So Maria Antonia renounced her rights to the empire and was married by proxy to Louis Auguste on April 19th, 1770. Um, From then on, she's referred to as the Dauphine. And then the two met in person that May in an elaborate ceremony in which she sheds her Austrian trappings and became French from then on going by Marie Antoinette. And this was like a literal thing. So they all meet at this island in the middle of a river and she goes in in all of her Austrian clothes with her Austrian handmaids. They strip her down, dress her in the latest French fashions she can't take anything from France with her out the door. They don't even let her take her dog. You mean her, anything from Austria? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Anything from Austria out the door. They don't even let her take her dog. She steps out, and from then on, she is Marie Antoinette, the French Dauphine. And if you, I don't know if you've ever seen the um, movie with Kirsten Dunst mm-hmm. where she plays. They do a really good job of this. Like, she's literally in the tent, and she, like, gets shoved out the door and she's just like staring at the French court like what do I do um definitely a culture shock um then 
later that month, the two are formally wed at the Palace of Versailles. Um, so just a note about Louis and Marie. They're kind of an odd match. They were about the same age, and, you know, he thought she was pretty enough, and I don't know what she thought about him, but they're completely different. Uh, he's, you know, shy, reserved, what we would call nerdy today, and she's like a social butterfly. So, like, when he was, like, going to bed at night, her evening was just beginning, and when she, you know, when he got up in the morning, she was, like, still sleeping. So they didn't spend a ton of time together at first. And, you know, they're young. But that was just, like, part of the reason why at the beginning it was really hard because she's so poorly matched with her husband. They just really have nothing in common. She's trying, but he's a tough nut to crack. And then from the very beginning... The French didn't trust her. They referred to her as the Austrian woman. Because, again, remember, Austria is the long-term enemy of France. So she's she's stepping into a very, very, very unfriendly court. And she doesn't even have her husband as an ally. Because he's not really trying. He's not. At all. So here's the thing. The French court, I think when you look at the story of Marie Antoinette, it's like another character and you kind of can't discount the role that it plays. So it can be argued that Marie was never set up for success because it's impossible to succeed at the French court if you aren't French. Um, you know, it's funny. These days we talk about it like, oh, if you go to Paris, like they're so mean to you. And if you try to speak French, they make fun of you. And you like read stories of people where they like go to Paris. They're like, have these dreams. I'm going to live in Paris. And it's just like horrible. You know, I mean, it was a whole episode of Sex in the City. Like Carrie lives out her dream of going to Paris. And it's just like a nightmare because that's the thing is like the French are known where if you aren't French, if you aren't brought up in that system, you're an outsider. And it's incredibly hard to assimilate later on. Um, so that's definitely going on even back in the 1700s. But you also have the issue of Versailles is a literal fishbowl. So this is really interesting. So she comes from the security and the safety of the Austrian court, where everything's very lavish. She's an archduchess, but... We might say things work a little bit more like what you would expect there in France. The king lives his life in public from the moment he wakes up in the morning to the moment he goes to bed. Anybody could come and watch. So like when he's eating his soup, there might be hundreds of people trying to watch the king eat his soup. And this also meant that like the act of like getting dressed in the morning, you know, using the bathroom wasn't even necessarily private and the nobles and the courtier the courtiers have a system for who gets to help you and who gets to like be in the room um and it's all this like strange system of like precedence and it's very baffling so like there's one story where it took like the entire morning to get her dressed because they get her to the point where she's like basically naked and they're ready to like put her clothes on. But like a woman of like higher rank and higher precedence kept like walking into the room. So like one woman was like holding like, let's say like her shift or her undergarments or whatever. And they're about to put it on her. And the next woman walks in and she's of a higher rank. So that woman has to hand it to that woman and they start the whole thing over again. And they do this like 16 times. 
but none of them are as high rank as the queen. It doesn't matter. Presumably, so. it doesn't matter. It's their it's their right to help her get dressed. So like she has no say in the matter. She's literally standing there shivering while they're arguing over who gets to put her clothes on. I mean, I get she's an outsider, but like. Geez, if that kept up for decades at a certain point, I would just be like, excuse me, if you are going to fight about helping me, actually try to help me put clothes on. The whole point is like all of this is a performance. It's like performative living. So Sounds you exhausting. Don't, you don't get to disrupt the performance. And she like wrote to her mother at one point. She was like, I put my rouge on in front of the whole world. And what she meant was like, I don't have a moment of privacy. I don't, my life is not my own. I'm, li- I'm like on display like a doll. And that was just, like, the culture of Versailles. And I don't know if, like, I was reading, like, maybe it was meant as a way to showcase the prestige of the monarchy. Because remember, at this point, France is still an absolute monarchy. So it was almost like, to make this worth it, everybody can come and see, like, how magnificent we are. But in practice, it was just, like you say, exhausting. She lived and breathed her life on display and it's like coming from Austria this is a jarring cultural shock and it took a lot of getting used to so that's like one piece of it then you also have the issue of like the politics of the French court so her instinct and she's encouraged by the king's um sisters who are her husband's or no her husband's aunt so I guess they would be his the king's daughters um to not acknowledge the king's mistress. And so the king at this time, Louis the Fifteenth, has a mistress, and she goes by Madame du Barry. And she wields enormous influence over the king, but the court hates her, and basically they're like, she's a big ol' hoe, like you can't talk to her. And of course, like as a proper archduchess, Marie would be like, well, I'm not going to talk to the mistress of the king. So this goes on for a while, um, but this kind of puts her on the bad side of King Louis. Like, he wants her to acknowledge his mistress. So there's, like, this tug of war, and she's caught up in these politics that she doesn't really understand because, again, she's, like, a teenager. So finally she has to give in, and they exchange pleasantries. And I just love the story because she literally walked in looked around, didn't make eye contact with Madame Dubarry, and says, there are a lot of people at Versailles today. And then just keeps walking. But that was enough. She was like, I've been acknowledged. I'm happy. So that put her in the good graces of King Louis, which was good because her situation was always really precarious because it took seven years to consummate the marriage. Whoa. Yeah. And they're like, 16, 17, like, they're not that young for the time. Was it because um, she was young or because the king just had, or Louis just had no interest in <sighs> consummating his marriage? There's a or lot his of... father was telling him, maybe don't do this yet. No, there's, a, they were put to bed and, like, it was expected that it would happen. But there's a lot of theories the prevailing theory for a really long time, I don't want to get like too much into this, but the prevailing theory was a long time was that Louis had some kind of issue that prevented him from like. But he had a mistress. No, that was, that was King Louis the 15th. Oh, I thought it was her husband's mistress. Okay. No, no, no. That was okay. the king's mistress. At this point, they're still the Dauphin and Dauphine. But everybody knows because this life is so public 
that they have not consummated the marriage. So the issue, they thought maybe Louis had like some kind of issue. Now they think maybe that wasn't the case. Nobody really knows what the issue was, but it took seven years. So this is a problem, not only because they're not providing heirs to the throne, but also it threatens her very position as Dauphine. Because she can be put aside if the marriage isn't consummated. And this French-Austrian alliance was always kind of shaky. So her mother is writing to her like, what the hell? (laughs) You have one job. (laughs) You know. And she's like, I don't know what to do. (laughs) And also like, you have to think about the time period. It's like, neither of them were probably very educated in what actually needed to occur because there was one point where like she wrote to her mother and was like all good and then they found out like through the grapevine like nothing happened (laughs) (laughs) nothing worth writing home about so um this is kind of an issue but here's the thing in may of 1774 louis the 15th died leaving two two teenagers to take the throne so Louis ascends as Louis XVI, and Marie Antoinette becomes the Queen of France. Um, at first, like Louis guided by advisors. Marie Antoinette has very little political influence. This reminded me a lot of Catherine of Aragon, where her mother is writing to her and saying, like, you need to guide your husband. You need to always be thinking of Austria. Remember you're German above anything else. Like be a good French wife, but stay German, which that's confusing, right? Yeah. But her whole point was she was supposed to be there to sort of champion the Austrian side of the alliance. And she's like, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to get through the morning to get my clothes on. (laughs) I can't even, I can't even have that happen. Like it was really hard for her to wield any kind of political influence. So at the beginning, she simply didn't. You know, she's there to have baby. From the French perspective, she's there to have babies and be decoration. And she's failing at having the babies because they haven't consummated the marriage. Um, So she really leans into the expectation that she will be the decoration of Versailles. So she starts spending money on clothes, furniture, luxuries. Louis gave her this, like, little retreat called the Petit Trianon. And she starts redecorating it. And, like, this is the thing where you start seeing propaganda and rumors right away. Like, she actually kind of decorated it sort of simply because it was meant to be a retreat. So you have all of this opulence around you at all times. You seek out the opposite, right? So, like, it was Mm -hmm. just, like, a very simple little retreat. But immediately rumors start flying that she's plastered the walls in gold. So... The spending immediately becomes an issue. In fact, her mother was writing to her and saying, like, are you spending too much money? Because people are telling me that you're spending too much money. And it's easy to criticize her for this, but it was also expected of her. Well, and if she's not having babies, like, then she's going to try to at least control what she can. Yeah. I mean, I think it was also like, this is a time where you didn't just get dressed. You got dressed in 18 layers of clothing and they better all be made out of gold. And the wigs were enormous and elaborate and expensive and you were powdered and rouged up to your eyeballs. You know, you you were like a character of a person. So she's just expected to live up to this. Unfortunately, at the time, the country is in enormous debt. So when Louis XVI took the throne, 
the crown is in enormous debt already. Like Louis the Fifteenth was an enormous profligate um, spender, and he sort of inherited his debts. But they're also seeing grain shortages. Um, many are quick to blame Marie Antoinette for the crown's finances. They're saying, well, look how much the queen is spending. If she would cut back, everything would be fine. Um, that's like not really fair because the sheer number of people that are being supported by the crown at this point is incredibly high and none of them are paying for their own households. Like for example, her brother-in-law, Louis's younger brother and his wife maintained separate households and mm. the court paid for all of that. Like they didn't pay for anything, but she's unfortunately the most visible and importantly, the most foreign. So that was always an issue. But finally, in 1778, we get some good news. The queen was finally pregnant. Yay. Yeah. Apparently her brother visited and, you know, impressed upon her in on the need to get this moving. The, and it worked. The hows and wherefores. And yeah, why. it worked. Um, but, of course, there are rumors that Louis is not the father. Um but that is more due to, like, her increasingly bad reputation than any grain of truth. Like, this was definitely Louis' kid. Um, I'm just trying to highlight the fact that, like, she never even was really that popular. Like, at the beginning, you know, she could go to Paris and they would, like, give her these, like, standing ovations in the opera house. But, like, ten years in, everybody's like, we hate her. I mean, she just had a really small window of success. And then from then on, it was like she couldn't put a foot right um, she, you know, she gets pregnant and everybody's like, oh, it's not the king's baby. And um, it's also just like, I think you start to see the rise of these like pamphlets of propaganda. Like, you know, people, it was like the original tabloid press. People could write whatever they wanted and they were absolutely vicious to her. Like it starts as satire, but it quickly takes a really vicious turn. And also the nobles didn't like her. So she starts... Um, changing court customs and dress. So I mentioned, you know, this like 18 layers of clothing and these really elaborate wigs. But after a certain point, she just gets kind of sick of that and she starts to move towards this more like simple style. So she begins to dress in these like very simple flouncy like muslin dresses and it's all about like, I'm a simple country girl walking through the garden. But everybody's like, whoa, 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 like, no, no, we're supposed to spend 10 hours a day getting dressed and we're not into this. And the men are wearing these frock coats. Like, what the heck? You know, it's just so informal. And so like the really conservative older faction at court started to blame her for like the breakdown in the culture at court, even though like you might say it's natural for the younger generation to come in and start making some changes they just yeah. added this to the column of, like, we hate her. And this is when you just really start to see her reputation decline. So first you have the matter of the French debt. It just never went away. Um, but actually, a big reason for that was maybe they could have started to make some headway, but they got involved in a little skirmish called <laughs> the American Revolution. Thanks. Everybody give it up for America's favorite fighting Frenchman. Um, I'm probably going to quote Hamilton like four times here, just so you know. So <laughs> I already, when you were um, talking about like stuff at the beginning, I already had that first line of Jefferson's song in my head. <laughs> yeah. 
you were off getting high with the French? No, the um, France, is, France is following us to revolution. There's no more status quo. Yeah, if only it were that romantic. Um, so, yeah, they get involved in the American Revolution. And it's really, it's kind of hard to say, like, for Marie's part, like, what her motivation, interest was. But she had a lot of favorites at this point. At this point, I talked about this with Margaret of Anjou. The French court is just, like, factions. That's, like, you find your group, you stick with them. So it was probably likely that she was just influenced by her favorites um, who supported the American Revolution. So she convinced Louis to fund the rebels. Um, also, you know, from the French perspective, anything that's bad for Great Britain is good for France. Um, what was interesting that I thought was like, you never talk about, no one ever talks about this in America. We always talk about like, oh, the French helped us, but she was actually instrumental in securing the Austrian and Russian support for the French to support the American colonies. Hmm. So, you know, basically she gave France the backing of Europe that they needed to go against the United Kingdom. Otherwise, they they wouldn't have done it. And, you know, despite the fine, and they spent a lot of money. <laughs> so despite the financial impact, initially this is seen as a success because the British lost. Go America. Um, but this ultimately did lead to some financial ruin for France. And, uh, you know, we'll put a pin in this, but the French got some ideas. You mean the French people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They got some revolutionary ideas. Hmm. So this is kind of like not a good thing in the long run for Marie, personally. Um, around this time, so this is kind of an interesting point in her life. So she's like directly involved in getting French support for the American Revolution. Um, she has her second child around this time, Louis Joseph, or Joseph, I guess. Um, and this is interesting about all the French princes is that they're all named Louis, but they all have like a second name. So, like, her husband is Louis Auguste. This is Louis Joseph. Um, and then they had another Louis later. Um, oh, really? Mm-hmm. It's probably in case if, if they if they all die, like, that you're going to end up with another Louis on the throne. I don't know. I kind of liken this to, like, you know, the American practice of, like, certain sectors where they'll be like, this is Mary Margaret and this is Mary Catherine and, like, they're sisters. <laughs> you know, everybody just has, like, Mary's, like, the first name and then, like, you just add on another name at the end. Um, anyway. I've never encountered that. Oh, well, if you live in the Northeast, you see it all the time. But, so she has her second child, and she finally gives France a dauphin. A, sorry, dauphin. I worked so hard on my pronunciation. 20 hours, you'd think I'd have it down. Mm-hmm. So, I just wanted to highlight this, because this is kind of like, when I was reading this book, I was like, oh, that was kind of like her last success as queen. <laughs> she has a boy. Yeah. And then it's just like all downhill from there. So also around this time, her mother dies, which jeopardizes the alliance between Austria and France. She was really worried about this at this time. Um, Her brother, Josef, he just wasn't as formidable. Um, You know, he's writing to her and trying to, like, encourage her, like, don't worry, like, everything will be fine. And she's like, yeah, but, like, my mother was a force of nature and you're just kind of there. So she's really worried about this French-Austrian alliance, which, as I mentioned, is always kind of shaky. And once she's in France, 
there's not much she can do about it. Like if Austria does something wrong, she's blamed for it. And it's really hard for her to convince Austria to do anything right. Because she wasn't very close to her brother. Um, and then also, this is like a bizarre scandal, but I wanted to bring this up. So in 1782, she appoints a new governess. That sounds innocuous, right? But like, let's revisit that whole dressing room issue of all these women coming in with like precedence and like causing a big stir over a dressing gown. So mm -hmm. she appoints someone who's well known to her in the king, um, who they trusted, a really good friend, the Duchess de Polignac. Um, but she's considered too low born for the role by a lot of people at court. So they're basically like, oh, that's nice that you want her to raise your kids, but she can't possibly serve that function. Like, she's just not high-born enough. And then, of course, as happens when you serve a vital role to the ruling family, you start to receive favors, and your family starts to receive favors. So her family starts to benefit from the appointment. It's like outrage ensues. Um, everyone's like, like the Woodvilles. Yes, exactly. And everyone's like, can you believe it? This family, they're up jumped. They have no business with this much influence and it's all Marie Antoinette's fault. So it just increases the dislike in those that already hate her. You also see a rise in this time of these pamphlets that we were talking about of people like basically trashing her but they start to take a really gross turn so she starts to be depicted as like a sexual deviant um there's a huge market for this for some reason they were just like obsessed with portraying her this way and it's it is true so we won't really delve too much into this but she most likely had at least one extra marital lover who was a swedish gentleman uh count count fairson um, and their relationship went on for like maybe 12 years and it, you know, wow. wasn't necessarily always sexual. This guy had like 50 mistresses, but they definitely had a relationship and it's like probably likely that Louis was aware. I mean, the French were not so hung up on that kind of stuff. So it's like really bizarre that the public took this role and you have to also like the thing is it wasn't all just coming from inside France. It was like other European countries, for some reason, they were obsessed with portraying her this way as well. So like when I talk about the tabloid press, like this is like the original like tabloid takedown. And Well, the French, if, if they're not really hung up on this, though, but as a queen, it seems really risky for her to take a lover because she can't risk not having her kids be legitimate. And it's funny that you bring that up because she had four live born children. And at least one of them was born about nine months after she was known to be in the company of Count Fairson. But the book I read, and apparently according to scholars, no one thinks that um, it wasn't Louis' kid. And also Count Fairson, I believe, was never known to father any children. So it's mm -hmm. likely that he may have been infertile or, you know, birth control wasn't a foreign concept. So especially for someone who had so many mistresses as he did, he wouldn't have been unfamiliar with ways to prevent pregnancy. So it's highly likely that all of her children were Louis. That's the consensus. But, you know, her reputation... But you don't want to introduce public doubt. But it's not like, you know... 
a lot of this is known after the fact from like journals and letters. At the time, this wasn't public information. Okay. So they're not so they're not bringing this up because of any suspicion. It's just malicious gossip. Yeah. I mean, they've already decided she's like a sexual deviant evil like witch. they're not taking knowledge of her having an affair and then turning it into some kind of weird sexual proclivity. No, I mean there were like rumors at the time, but like she could literally sit next to somebody at dinner and there'd be a rumor. I mean there were rumors that she was like having lesbian affairs with women at court and there's like no evidence that that ever happened. Okay. It's just like she looked at somebody the wrong way and they were like, oh, what's their relationship? Let me make up a whole story. Um, you know, there's so many examples of this. Um, her reputation is just really suffering at this time. You know, she even has another son, Louis Charles, or Louis Charles, as they call him in the book. Um, and that doesn't dampen the resentment. Like, she's literally now doing everything that's expected of her and gets no credit for anything that goes right and gets blamed for everything that goes wrong. So I want to talk about the affair of the necklace because I think a lot of people know this story even if they don't know the context of it. Um, this is like the biggest hit to her reputation and um, I think directly led to the downfall of the monarchy and it's all over a di- diamond necklace which is a convoluted and bonkers story. So I'm going to try to explain it because I was listening to this and I had to rewind it and then I had to look it up on Wikipedia because I was like, I'm not following. This is like so complicated. But here's here's what happened. So in 1772, Louis XV, so Louis Marie Antoinette's husband's grandfather, commissioned a diamond necklace from the jewelers Charles Auguste Bomer and Paul Bassange for Madame Dubarry. At the time, it was worth the equivalent of $14 million in today's dollars. Um, So this is like, you should see the picture of this. I mean, this is like a massive necklace. Nobody these days would wear a necklace like that. Because it was such an undertaking, it took several years for the jewelers to gather all of the stones that were required to make the necklace. And, of course, before it's complete, Louis XV dies of smallpox. So the necklace is kind of, like, floating around out there. And here's how it's described. It's described as a row of 17 glorious diamonds, as large almost as filberts. I don't know what that is. Um, a three-wreathed festoon. We'll have to put a picture up in the show notes. And pendants enough. Simple pear-shaped, multiple star-shaped, or clustering amorphous encircle it around a very queen of diamonds. Okay, so basically it's like a little necklace and it's like kind of like scalloped and this is all made out of diamonds and then under that is like another rope of diamonds and then hanging from that rope are like five ropes of diamonds it's just picture like heavy the biggest diamond necklace i forget how many carrots it was i meant to write that down i remember i was like walking down the street going to work and they mentioned the carrot weight and i went damn 
that's a lot of diamonds. So it's a big freaking necklace. So Louis the 15th dies and the jewelers have made this necklace, but no one has purchased the necklace. And they're like basically bankrupt from fronting the money for this necklace. So they go to the natural source, right? They go to Louis the 16th and they say, hey, Louis, don't you want to buy this for your wife, Marie Antoinette? But Marie's like, uh, no, I don't want that necklace. Basically, she says the money would be better spent on ships because they're involved in a few foreign conflicts and they could really use warships. Some people said she probably didn't want it because it was designed for Madame Dubarry, who she really didn't like. But, you know, she's already getting flack for spending too much money. She's not going to tell Louis, hey, go spend $14 million on a necklace for me. Like, she's not an idiot. So they're not going to buy it. They tried for several, year, for several years to sell it on the European market. You know, they would take replicas to various foreign courts and, like, no one's buying because this necklace is, like, too extravagant. It's too big. Everyone's like, dudes, like, we're not going to buy that necklace. It's ridiculous. Well, why, if they're jewelers, why not just break it up and turn it into different pieces of jewelry? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. For some reason, I think it was maybe more valuable as the – I think they were still trying to make a profit. I don't know. That wasn't clear to me, but – you know, they tried several times. They went back to Marie Antoinette directly, and she was like, I'm not going to buy this necklace. Like, okay, so that's established. She doesn't want the necklace. So then you have to en enter a woman named Jeanne de Valois Saint-Romé. I don't know if I said that right. Who's descended from Henry II of France. So she's, like, descended through, like, a bastard line, but she's very proud of her heritage, and she's determined to enter the royal fold. She's, at this time, the mistress of Cardinal de Rohan, who's also trying to gain favor with the queen. So Rohan is, like, a cousin of Louis. He's, like, a member of a cadet branch of the French royal family. And at one point, he had, he had like, insulted Marie Antoinette, so she wouldn't give him the time of day. So he very much wants to get her to acknowledge him because... Obviously, having royal favor is currency in this world. So, Jian convinces Rohan that she's gained favor with the queen. Um, so, he's, like, trying to glom on to her. So, she says, like, she, I went to court and she acknowledged me and, you know, we're friendly now. So, if you want to get on her good side, you know, go through me. So, he starts writing to the queen and the queen, I have that in quotation marks, starts replying to him. It's really Jian replying and faking it. Basically, she had the cardinal convinced that Marie Antoinette was in love with him. And so he decides he wants to meet her in person. So they arrange this like midnight meeting in the garden. She finds a prostitute who happens to look a lot like Marie Antoinette to come pose as the queen and meet him in the garden. So she hands him a rose tells him they'll forgive all past disagreements and, like, swans off into the night. And this idiot buys it. He thinks, like, he's met with the queen and all's good. So it didn't help that Gian is, like, openly boasting to everybody that she has this relationship with the queen. 
So he thinks she's involved with the queen. She's telling everybody she is. Marie Antoinette doesn't know who this woman is. But this is how the jewelers get involved. So remember, they have to sell the necklace, and they've been trying to sell it to Marie Antoinette. So they decide, well, hey, this woman's like such good friends with Marie Antoinette. We'll go to her. So Jeanne tells Rohan that Marie Antoinette wants the necklace, but she can't buy it publicly because it's so expensive and it would look bad. So he, and she gets the jewelers involved, and he decides to buy it. And he's going to, like, make installment payments, but he claims that he's doing all of this on Marie Antoinette's authorization. The jewelers deliver the necklace to Jeanne, who promptly breaks it up into pieces and sells it on the black market. So, bye-bye necklace. And some of, apparently the stones were, it was, like, so poorly dismantled that a lot of the stones were, like, ruined when they were tracked down. Hmm. Then it comes time, somebody has to pay for the necklace. <laughs> and... Jean tries to, like, produce the notes that the cardinal said, like, I'll pay for it. And they're like, no, no, like, we need cold, hard cash. Like, we're $14 million in on this thing. Like, somebody has to pay us. So they go to the queen. They actually, like, wrote her a letter, like, hey, we'd like to be paid now. And she has no idea what's going on. So she just, like, basically throws it away and is like, this jeweler won't leave me alone. Now he's acting like I bought the necklace. Like, what a loser. So basically... It all comes to light what happened. Rohan is arrested and Gian is arrested three days later along with like some ancillary characters like the guy who forged the letters from the queen and the prostitute who pretended to be Marie Antoinette. Everyone's found guilty except Rohan who's led off by the Parlement which is a court not to be confused with Parliament. Um, and so as a result many of the people in France like think that the queen was involved. So basically, this sounds like kind of a crazy story and it sounds kind of innocuous, but it became incredibly public. And because the cardinal wasn't convicted, everybody was convinced that Marie Antoinette had somehow duped him. They thought surely the court wouldn't have let him off if he wasn't guilty. So her reputation never recovers from this. Like, I don't know if I'm doing this justice. This was like a huge scandal. The king gets involved. It's a huge mess. And it plays a huge role in discrediting the monarchy in France. Because again, this is all in this, like these pamphlets, like their people are writing about it. And everybody's like, oh, Marie Antoinette is such a profligate spender. Of course she wanted to buy this necklace. And of course she didn't want us to know about it. She's clearly the villain here. She had nothing to do with any of this, but it doesn't matter. The damage is done. Everyone believes the worst of her. Um, you know, don't forget, this is like four years before the revolution. So this really, really damaged the monarchy's reputation. And there wasn't a verdict when that guy was um, not convicted? Like, they didn't say why they didn't convict him? Well, so this is the thing that's kind of interesting is like this court, it wasn't like a public court proceeding. So they all kind of agreed that he, I mean, he was a victim too. He had been duped. And they didn't. But he's the one who paid for the necklace or said he was going to pay for the yeah, necklace. Yeah, but because he thought that the queen was asking him to buy it. It was like this woman, Gian, who wanted to get the necklace and she sold it on the black market. Like, he was definitely a stupid victim. Like, at one point, he got in trouble because, like, she had signed her letters 
Marie Antoinette, like Queen of France. And Louis was like, you idiot. Like, queens and kings don't sign letters that way. We just sign it with our name. Like, you should know that because you're a member of the royal family. Like, you're a freaking idiot for falling for this. So it was like kind of like the king got involved and like sort of humiliated this guy. So all this did was like increase his enmity towards Marie Antoinette. So even though he gets off, he's like encouraging the bad reputation. And the thing about the court that let him off was they never said anything about her innocence. She wasn't even involved and they just never even commented on her involvement. So the public just kind of filled in the blanks and assumed the worst. Mm. It's, it's a really weird story because like when I explain it, it's like she had, like, it's very clear. She had no idea what was going on, but I think this is the disconnect between like you have the aristocracy life at Versailles but the average person in Paris who's like struggling to feed themselves, who's becoming by the day increasingly fed up with the monarchy, looking for the worst in everyone. And remember, like, you can't discount the xenophobia. That Austrian woman, all she does is spend our money. It's very easy for them to believe a story like this. Like, think about today. Like, you have to be really careful when you hear a story about someone that you don't like politically. I always go and double check and make sure it's like being written about on multiple sources because it's really easy to see something that like confirms your bias, right? And you just have yeah, to be I really careful. Yeah, I guess this makes me wonder though about like Louis because knowing that everybody's against his wife because she's not French, then I mean, why even have a French wife or a not French wife? Well, it was all meant to be a political like alliance and, you know, it's really easy to talk about this stuff in hindsight. Like I can sit here and say her reputation was decreasing rapidly, but when it's happening, I don't think you see it that way. I think you kind of think of like, Oh, I just need to turn it around or, Oh, I just need to get the people to like me or, Oh, I just need to have another baby. You know, like you can say in hindsight, like this was the moment, like the damage was done. But at the time she's thinking I didn't do anything. Surely the people will come to see that I'm, like, an honest person and I care about them. That never happened. So this eventually then is a catalyst leading into the revolution? Yes. I mean, this was the point where the people decided, like, she's she's the reason everything's going wrong. And, like, like how this, like, at the end I was, like, writing, like, a couple of takeaways. But, like, I think, you know, she was blamed for everything. Like, for some reason... So how do we get from the affair of the necklace then all the way to the point where she's being blamed for um, revolution? Well, let's, let me tell you. Things are getting pretty dicey at this point. Um, you know, at this point, like, her reputation is so bad, the only card she really has left to play is, like, the mother of the children of France. So there's, it's not a coincidence that at this time you start to see like all of her portraits include her children because she's highlighting the role of like, yeah, you hate me, I'm Austrian, I'm foreign, but I'm the mother of the future of France. My children are going to rule this country. At this time, you also see Louis falls into a really deep depression, like really bad. And you know, at the time they don't really have the tools to fight this. 
So he re- is he depressed because France is doing so badly? Yes, he's basically like, I suck as a king. <laughs> I'm so depressed. And so he starts to rely on Marie Antoinette more than he ever has before. Remember, she never really wielded that much political influence, but she starts to kind of like rule behind the scenes because he literally can't function. Like all he does, if he gets out of bed, he goes hunting. Like that's literally all he does. Um, this doesn't sit well. Like you remember, these are fact. This is a faction-heavy court. So, and most of the factions are anti-Marie. It's, it's not even, I don't even think that that like does justice. Like it's not enough to say that she had enemies. Cause this isn't like Margaret of Anjou who was like leading armies into battle against people. This is just like, some people wanted her to sit back and do nothing. Some people would say she wasn't doing enough. Like it doesn't matter what she did. She could not put a foot right Um, Like, anything she does politically is seen as a bad thing. So, France is in debt. It's her fault, even though, although, so the estimate for, like, the royal family spending was, like, 7% of the country's budget, although apparently that was under-reported. But, you know, she's not responsible for all of it. The thing is, is, like, at this point, France is just, like, really struggling. It's dire straits, years of grain shortages, cattle disease, debt like the people are starving the aristocracy so the way that it worked was like the aristocracy was they didn't have to pay taxes they didn't so they basically a lot of them were being supported directly by the crown but they weren't paying anything back into it and when they were told like hey maybe you could contribute a little bit they didn't want to do that you have this like feudal system and it was very much at the time a feudal system of like literally there was like a cartoon of like the commoners holding up the clergy and the aristocracy on their backs because they wouldn't contribute anything to the country. I mean, when you talk about like populism and people going crazy, like I think the people of France were like rightfully pissed. They didn't have anything. They were being taxed heavily because there's a huge deficit so the answer usually is taxes, but again, the wealthy aren't getting taxed. Like I have to tell you, I was reading this and I was like, oh my God, this sounds so familiar. <laughs> it's never the wealthy that are being taxed. It's just like the poorer you are, the bigger, the bigger your contribution, but the less you get in return. Anyway, she's being blamed for everything. So nobody at this point can deny that this situation has to be fixed in France. So Louis decides like, I'm going to lead. I'm going to call. So he calls what's known as the first assembly of notables. And it's, it's the first assembly of notables that was called in 160 years to discuss financial reforms. So basically they call anyone who's anybody to come and discuss the situation. Um, like a huge chunk of these people just refused to cooperate. They were like, Nope, I don't want to see taxes on me and my friends. I'm not going to contribute to the problem. You need to figure it out. Maybe your wife could just spend less money. Um, Marie Antoinette notably didn't attend. So as a result, she's blamed completely for its failure because she didn't show up. Hmm. I don't think that's fair, but 
what you're going to see the next, I'm going to like kind of like gloss over a lot of this, but you, what you see is a pattern of like Louis tries something, the nobles or the commoners or the clergy don't participate and everybody's like, it's the queen's fault. So at this point, France, France is in... Blame the woman. Yep. France is in a full-blown crisis, um, and the blame is, of course, falling on Marie Antoinette. And it's not entirely her fault, but it's not it's not fair to say that she's entirely blameless. So when she had an opportunity to support reforms, she didn't do so. She's kind of detrimental to the progress that was being made. So at this point in time, the most important job in France is finance minister. And it's not immune from the political shenanigans. Um, she wants to see someone she likes in the role. So she has two of them dismissed, like, pretty quickly. Um, just because she didn't like them. So she's not necessarily helping the situation. And then the situation gets way worse. Because Louis decides to reinstall the estate's general. Which hadn't been in place since 1614. So what this is, is like a traditionally like elected legislative body in France. And it's made up of the three estates. You have the clergy makes up the first estate. The nobility makes up the second estate. And the commoners make up the third estate. In 1614, this was one thing. But by this time, the late 1700s, the commoners outnumber the nobility and the clergy like four to one. So naturally, they demand more representation. They're saying it's not fair that we could be outnumbered and outvoted by the clergy and the nobility when we represent the biggest bulk of the French population. So the new finance minister proposes that, hey, let's appease them and give them double the representation for the third estate that they've had and this will serve as a check on the aristocracy isn't that a great idea democracy yay yeah this turns out to be a disaster because all of the commoners and the people that make up the third estate are like radicalized at this point um maybe the americans can take some blame for that I think I just finally understand why they call newspapers the fourth estate. Yes. Yep. This this has ties to the French Revolution because the okay. third estate was so instrumental in bringing about democracy eventually. Um, but, you know, this is the thing. It's like the people that make up this are like people that were most likely to be sent to fight in the American Revolution. So they come back with these ideas like... They overthrew their government. We don't need a monarchy. Yeah, we should have representation, but we should also you should also take our ideas are the most important. And I don't I don't mean to come across as like this like huge monarchist or like supporting this. I'm I'm just mostly coming at this from like reading a biography about Marie Antoinette. Like from her perspective, this is a huge disaster. So the other thing that they were really good at is they start spreading all this malicious propaganda as we've seen that's already a weapon that's been deployed against her but they sort of take it and adopt it as their own and they're really successful and meanwhile like Louis and Marie Antoinette are distracted all of this is happening and they're I just think you could say that they're not paying enough attention because the Dauphin, the Dauphin dies so Louis 
Joseph died and he was like always sick like he had fevers on and off throughout his entire childhood and I read that he had tuberculosis of the spine whatever that is it sounds awful <laughs> like by the time he died he was like couldn't walk it's basically like his spine got infected and as a result just got more and more deformed it's pretty awful but like what's more awful is like the king and queen are mourning their son. The French people didn't even care. They couldn't even have like a proper funeral for him because they didn't want to spend any money on him because they were like afraid of the reaction. And, you know, you would think normally in a monarchy the people might mourn the loss of their crown prince, but the French people didn't even care. They were just so disgusted with the monarchy at that point. Um because they're busy demanding a new constitution. So Marie Antoinette has the finance minister dismissed again, and she has this plan along with a few of the other nobles. They are like, we hate, we need military intervention and we can't rely on the French military because they're part of this third estate. So we're going to bring in Swiss troops to crush the revolution. Like th they'll help us. Basically, they were going to bring in, like, mercenaries, like, hired guns. So, I don't know if they were ever actually going to do this, but the people become aware, and as a result, they storm the Bastille. You may have heard of that. Mm-hmm. So they storm the Bastille, steal arms and ammunition, and they're basically like, you're going to bring in Swiss troops against us? Fine. We're going to arm ourselves. Bring it on. So as a result, the aristocracy, the nobility, they just begin to flee France. But Marie Antoinette and Louis stay because, you know, they're looking for a resolution. And I think, honestly, it's just like pure denial at this point. Like, Louis especially never thought he was in any, like, real danger. So then they form, the people form this National Constituent Assembly, and this is basically like they're going to work on a new constitution, and they start to chip away at the king's power, notably with the help of Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, who helped write the new constitution. Um, so France becomes a constitutional monarchy. And I just thought that was kind of interesting. Like, Thomas Jefferson loved the French, um... I think I alluded to that earlier, you know, the line in Hamilton, like he's off getting high with the French during the American Revolution. Um, but he's very involved in all of this. And I think he believed in the power of the people. But I think what we'll talk about later is like, I don't think you can compare the American Revolution with the French Revolution. It was just two different animals. Um, They're totally different yeah. things. So, you know, at this time, the royal family, they're still at Versailles. Life goes on, but life in Paris is reaching a breaking point with more and more significant food shortages. Um, the people are rioting. Also a quote from Hamilton. <laughs> and so a mob attacks Versailles. And basically what they do is they attack and they force the family to move to Paris. They're like, you need to come. Basically, they put them under house arrest. And um, they held them at... I forget how they pronounce this. It's the Tuileries. It's that's not how you say it. It's like that's how I say it's it. It's like <laughs> Tuileries or something. Yeah, like, something like that. It looks like Tuileries. <laughs> well, like I was listening to this earlier, and I was like, "What 
do they keep talking about? And then I was like, oh, is that the Tuili Rays? Like, not how I thought you would pronounce it. Um, so basically, they're held there under the supervision of the National Guard, which is under the command of Lafayette. And it's interesting, like, there were all these rumors that, like, Marie Antoinette and Lafayette were in this, like, sexual relationship. And, like, in reality, they absolutely loathed each other. Like, she blamed him for a lot of this. Because he basically went off, he basically convinced her to help fund, he was, like, part of the effort to get her to fund the American Revolution. He goes off to America, wins that war, and comes back and starts making life hell for her. Like, from her perspective, right? Um, so, at this point, like, they're under this house arrest, and everyone's, like, going through the motions. Like, she would, like, still get involved in her charitable causes and they would like go to church and sort of pretend like go through these acts of like being king and queen but it's like clear that like they need to leave and so what's interesting here is like the book I was reading they went through in exhaustive detail like all of these options like basically everybody was like you have to get out but like plot after plot after plot is rejected because the underlying issue was like louis didn't think that he had to leave everybody was like the problem is marie antoinette if we could just get her out of france people might calm down and they were like if she can get out of france then she'll be safe but she doesn't want to go without her children but everybody was trying to tell her like your daughter is safe because at this time she has like two surviving children and they were like, your daughter's safe. Like, no one's going to hurt your daughter. And your son is the future king. But, like, uh, we understand, like, if you want to take one of your kids with you, you should take him. Because he's, like, the most in danger. So they were trying to convince her to leave with just Louis Charles. She wouldn't do it. She was like, we're either all going together or we're not going at all. So they missed a lot of opportunities there. But ultimately, they decide... Okay, we got to go. So this is what's known as the flight to Varin. And it is a disaster from start to finish. So I'm going to try to do this justice. Because in the book, I was listening to it and I was just shaking my head. And I was just like, I know this is like a real thing. And I know this happened like hundreds of years ago. But like, my God, these people are so stupid. So they decide they're going to leave. And Count Fairson, who's like her lover, friend, what have you, is instrumental in concocting this plan. So they're like, we got to get everybody out together because she won't leave anybody behind. And the ideal thing would have been to take like two carriages that could move really fast and get out of the city. But she's like, no, we all have to go together. So they commission this like massive carriage that can hold like six adults, which is really big and then they bring like all of this shit with them because the thing about it was like they were fleeing Paris and they were gonna go disguised as servants and like the governess was gonna pose as a baroness but when they got to their destination they fully intended to arrive as king and queen of France so like really unintelligent really like does it like they were like oh well yeah we'll leave disguised as servants but like when we get to austria or wherever the hell we're trying to go actually i think they were trying to go to switzerland um they were like we can't show up in rags we have to have like like she's like i need my dressing case and i need all my jewels and like they literally brought the crown and like the robes of the king of france because louis was like 
surely I'll need my regalia. I mean, these people are just like, like, it just shows you like how they're just clueless. clueless and out of touch they were. Like, they really didn't grasp the danger that they were in. So it's like the whole, you know, and this is the thing is they had people stationed along the way with like fresh horses and because this carriage was pulled by six horses, not necessarily inconspicuous. And so they all like kind of like creep out in various stages out of the palace and like into this awaiting carriage. And so finally everyone's there. The last to arrive is Marie Antoinette and they're already like behind schedule. And for some reason, they, like the people along the way didn't anticipate delays. So they get like a broken carriage axle or whatever it is. And you know, there's just like delays that you might expect on this kind of transportation. So at, by the time they get to like one of their destinations, the waiting horses, like those people just assumed something went wrong and they just like went home. And... They also were just were not very conspicuous or inconspicuous. So at one point they're like waylaid and like someone's like really helpful helping them out. So Marie just starts giving them like silver dishes and doesn't think like this person might question how this like traveler dressed as a servant has silver dishes. And Louis like chatting it up with peasants. And, like, sticks his head out the window to talk to somebody and, of course, gets recognized. So they finally, and I forget which town this is, they finally get to this town and they're, at this point, the jig is up. Everybody knows who it is. And they're, like, stuck there because something's blocking the road. It's like a comedy of errors. So they're convinced to go stay in the inn. And by the time they get up in the morning, like, the army has come to escort them back to Paris. So, unsuccessful flight. Unfortunately, because they tried to flee, this took the unrest from a problem to a massive problem. The people of Paris were incensed. They were like, how dare they try to run? Because it was very clear that they were going to run, go to a foreign government, seek foreign interference, and try to crush the revolution. This is what took it from a problem that could have been solved to a radical revolution that there was, like, no going back. So to bring them back to Paris, the crowd is, like, staring at them in disgust, dead silent. They put them back under house arrest, and from there, it's just a downhill slope. So obviously, Marie Antoinette is appealing to her relatives for help. Austria tries to interfere. This leads to France declaring war on Austria. Marie Antoinette is now viewed as an enemy of the French people, also because she's trying to, like, pass military secrets to the Austrians. She's not exactly helping herself, but um, she's now, like, Austrian, and they've declared war on Austria, so she's an enemy. All attempts by foreign aristocrats to intervene only resulted in trouble. So the most famous of this is called the Brunswick Manifesto. So this is issued by the... Duke of Brunswick. Sounds English. It's not. He's a commander of the Austrian-Prussian forces. And he basically issued a letter that said, if any harm comes to the royal family, we'll harm French civilians. Didn't go over very well. And this results in a mob attacking the um, 
tuileries whatever you call it where they're being held and they had all of these swiss guards guarding them and they were absolutely slaughtered like they i was reading they were like parading like severed limbs and like heads and shit like through the streets like everyone was like covered in blood it was like an absolute massacre um and at this point they imprisoned the family in the temple in the marais so at this point the end is pretty swift the mob has won on nine uh september 21st 1792 they declare the fall of the monarchy the french monarchy is no more Louis is pretty quickly tried for treason and executed via guillotine. Um, What's his treason? So I put treason in as kind of a blanket, but it was like inciting the revolution or inciting the mob um, and inciting civil unrest. Like basically they were like, because you tried to flee, you betrayed your country. Like it was like a couple of charges, but they all basically amount to treason. Um, and this is the same way they charged Charles for treason against himself, yeah, essentially. Yeah, like basically they're like, it's your fault that we're a rabid mob. Um, Marie Antoinette was held for nine more months. Um, at this point, she's still holding out so how she's still holding out hope that her son, Louis Charles could be the eventual king of France. Like she's hoping for a resolution that somehow results in his taking over they thought maybe like a regency or something but unfortunately they take him from her they separate them and they just like completely brainwash him they convinced him to declare that she had molested him um because they knew that like if they could get him away from her he's a child they can have him say whatever they want and they have no intention of actually putting him on the throne um she's kept herself under very tight control they eventually transfer her to the conciergerie which is another prison, as prisoner number 280 to await trial. And at this point, by all accounts, she kind of, like, made her peace with what was happening. Like, she knew it was the end. And I thought this was, like, really poignant. So she's tried on October 14th, 1793. Her lawyers were only given a day to prepare a defense, so they'd already decided she was guilty. Um, she's declared guilty and guillotined on October 16th. 1793 and her last words were apologizing to the executioner for stepping on his foot she said i'm so sorry sir i didn't mean to do that and then they killed her and she and louis were both buried in unmarked graves what happened to her children so her son i you know i didn't look this up and i feel bad Um, i think her son was eventually killed i think her daughter was allowed to survive because if you remember under french law the daughter cannot inherit the crown. So that's why everybody just kind of assumed she was safe because, like, she wasn't really a threat. She couldn't inherit the crown. I think they kept her son alive for a while, but I think he was eventually executed. And then, and you know, so they were buried in unmarked graves, but they were eventually exhumed under the Bourbon Restoration and given an actual, like, Christian burial and all of that. But they were, at this point, like, thrown out with the trash. So it's kind of interesting, like, you know... I had a couple of takeaways at the end. Like, we talked about this a bit already, but, like, the French Revolution and the American Revolution are totally different beasts. Like, the Americans are a colony. They're overthrowing a government, but it's across the sea. They just want to set up their own government. But you're talking about 13 colonies with a very slim governmental structure already. It wasn't that difficult beyond, like, capturing the land. Um, The French had 
like overthrow a monarchy in their own backyard you know well it's kind of like saying like okay if Alaska wants to become its own country versus like if we decide we no longer want to be a democracy like those are two kind of entirely different things. Yeah, and also within the revolution. So like I said, I wasn't going to go too far into the revolution because that really is like a whole other thing. And like the causes of the revolution, nobody agrees on it. A lot of people blame Marie Antoinette, but she certainly wasn't the only cause. Um, but within the revolution, there's several factions. So just like to touch on this, you know, the most radical led to the overthrow of the monarchy, but they didn't really stop there. Um, after that, they couldn't agree on how the country was going to look. And at one point, they actually abolished Christianity. Yeah, and then you have, like, other nobles who are being killed and having to flee, not not just the king and queen. And then it's, like, the reign of fear if you don't follow... Or the reign yeah, of exactly. terror. If you, don't, if you don't have, like, a specific political affiliation, like, you can also be killed. Like, the French Revolution was a mess. It was basically... I think the French Revolution has more in common with the Russian Revolution. Yes, and, like, not to quote Hamilton again... But I think, like, this is, like, a really good point in, like, the um, play where they're, like, debating, do we support the French because they supported us? And they say, like, who's leading them? And Jefferson says, the people are leading. And Washington says, the people are rioting. And there's a difference. And I think that that is... And they also say, like, well, their excuse is that we didn't make a treaty with the people of France. We made it with the king of France. <laughs> right, right. But, I mean, the point is, like, in a very simplistic way of saying, like, there's orderly war revolution and there's, like, straight-up riots. I mean, these people, like, went crazy. Um, this was more like anarchy. It really is. Bloody anarchy. And because um, you have to remember, they're also, like, starving. They're desperate. They're all pissed off. So the revolution really didn't end until you have the rise of Napoleon. I also just wanted to highlight the fact that, like, poor Marie Antoinette is, like, I, like, I think, hopefully you got from this, like, she was just kind of relatively innocuous. Like, she really wasn't that political, and she wasn't that threatening. She wasn't that powerful, but she somehow got blamed for everything. Like, even Thomas Jefferson says, if there had been no queen, there would have been no revolution. Which, like, I mean, he was there. Like, I think that that's, like, pretty strong words from him. And he, I think he's just trying to say how much the people of France hated their queen. Never mind the part he played in taking away the power of the monarchy. Right. Oh, sure, I sure. Mean, that's, like, convenient to overlook. But I wonder, though, what he, like, if he's right. Like, if she had never come, would there have been a revolution? Because it it's getting blamed on her, but, like, she's also, because she isn't the cause, I think, like, this would have happened anyway. So, like, the French people were really unhappy when she arrived. Like, Louis XV was already overspending. He was already in debt. There were already these grain shortages. She just, for some reason, served as a conduit for the rage. Like, you know, I don't think that you can discount the xenophobia. Like, for whatever reason, she showed up and the problems all just, they looked at her and, like, it was just, like, a catalyst and a place to focus the rage, as unfair as that is. I think she was just a convenient scapegoat. And, like, in that vein, you know, we, Louis, Louis the Sixteenth like, barely rates a mention. Um, he was such a weak and ineffective ruler. Like, even when he was in charge, he was never really, like, in charge. And Marie wasn't a strong ruler either. And I think that that's, like, the issue. It's, like, they simply weren't ruling. 
Um, you know, and you remember this was an absolute monarchy at the time, and that's a recipe for disaster because the French system of nobility basically like ate itself. Like you have too many rules, too many opportunities for advancement, too many opportunities for failure. Everyone is so obsessed with status. Nobody wants to pay for anything, but they are leading these extravagant lives. And underneath all of this is absolutely no order. I think there's a really great, very micro example of this whole problem that you gave, which was the moment where Marie is just trying to get dressed in the morning. And all these people are bickering over who is the most powerful and who has the right and who gets to dress her and who gets to do the thing. But nobody's actually doing the thing. Yeah, so she's just like standing so there like shivering. Everybody's arguing over the correct way to rule or like who gets to rule or who's the most important. But nobody's actually doing the thing, which is the, the ruling and the running of the country. Yeah, and that and that's what I mean. Like it basically just turned into a self imploding thing where like, you know, it all started with Louis the Fourteenth when he established Versailles and it was like I think he established a lot of these practices and it was all intended to like convey the majesty of the crown and it just got out of control where like like I'm reading the book and they're talking about Louis and he just basically would do what anybody told him to do. But, like, the people that were influencing him would, like, come in and out of favor. And it was sort of, like, at one point I was, like, I said out loud, I'm, like, who's running the country? Like, no one's running the country. And I don't think he was necessarily raised to be a ruler. He was just raised to be on display. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really fascinating. I, I, like, like I said, 20 hours (laughs) – of the book and there's so much nuance to cover I just think like well you could say like if you're performing at life then you're not doing things right and it's a you know it just ultimately ends with like a mob storming your castle and beheading you it's so interesting to compare this to like the Charles um, the first it's story. It's so similar and yet not. Like, because he was actually that, doing things. Like in this case, yeah. every time Louis would try to do something, it almost felt like just like a, oh, well, that didn't work. I'll try this thing. They did this 160 years ago. That seemed to work. Everybody seemed to like that. I'll try this. It was like every time they would turn around, they were just like opening a new can of worms. And it like they couldn't address the actual issue, which was the fact that like, honestly, I think if the aristocracy had stepped up and agreed to just like, pay for stuff and pay some taxes well it's not their fault those you know uneducated lazy poor people are starving it's their own fault right right so and that's like what the interesting (laughs) thing about propaganda in this is like that let them eat cake story it's like from the average parisians perspective you might absolutely believe that story but like she she wasn't what got me was like the whole time this is happening I was like why wouldn't you be more concerned but I think again it's like that hindsight you know at the time it's unraveling and they just they just never thought like Louis the 16th especially just believed so strongly in his role as king like he just never thought that people would would turn against him like when they left Paris when they were fleeing in the carriage the story was that like 
he was just convinced it was just Paris. Like he just thought if we could just get out of Paris, it'll be fine. So literally they're trying to get out of the country. They just get beyond the bounds of Paris. And apparently he was like beside himself with joy. He was like, problem solved. We made it. Like everybody else will flock to us and help us and love us. (laughs) But they're also convinced, don't forget that their right to rule is God given. And so if it's the will of God, then the people can't counteract it. But just like um, a healthy dose of fear would have been nice to see. Common sense, awareness, mm-hmm. you know, anything really. Um, yeah, I mean, that is definitely like a tragic story about stupid people doing exactly what they were raised to do. Um, <laughs> so it's hard to know, you know, what could have gone differently. And it's kind of similar to the Charles story too in that France only briefly was without a monarchy, um, and then France became an empire, and then, you know, then democracy, but um, their revolution took a lot of twists and turns. Yeah, no, it was definitely interesting. I was reading it, and I was like, I can't even go into the French Revolution, like, I'll gloss it over, but, like, it's, it went on for several, it went on for, like, a decade, basically, and it had so many different factions. Like, I, I think this was, like, the beginning of the French Revolution was the fall of the It really was, yeah. This is the, the most dramatic part, maybe, but it's definitely just the start. Um, okay, well, so, next time, I think we're gonna talk a little bit about another, the other big revolution that we did kind of mention, um, because we're gonna talk about the Russians. Yes, um, specifically the Romanovs and their tragic end in another revolution. <laughs> so I guess the you could say a secondary theme of this series is revolution. <laughs> well, I thought it was kind of interesting. Like, this came roughly 100 years after Charles I, like mm-hmm. a little more than 100 years. And then that comes like 140 years later. Roughly about a hundred years later, yeah. give or take. Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. Of like, you just see this like trend. Yeah, and actually, I was Things kind of cyclical, thinking definitely. about it. Like, if you think of it, if you like, just to get a little nerdy for a second, but if you think about like technology and how quickly um, news travels these days, and how quickly like trends travel between countries and think people are influenced, I'm like, was that the equivalent back then? Was it like a hundred? Did it take a hundred years or something that? these days might take like 10 years maybe so then I was like oh okay is that why everybody's like got a Donald Trump sorry be great if we learn from our mistakes yeah. but we don't yeah <laughs> anyway I hope that was interesting I hope it wasn't like too convoluted or too long yeah it was long but I knew it was going to be um yeah we it wouldn't be a bad idea if you like these long episodes let us know if you prefer them to be broken up into smaller chunks also let us know that um we typically like to keep everything contained in one episode um you can make liberal use of the pause button but um yeah any feedback would be great okay well until next time until next time Monarchast is produced by me, Allie, and me, Claire, and our logo is by Ryan Cooney. If you like our episodes and want to give us a shout out, please rate or review us on iTunes or Google Play or whatever your preferred method of podcast listening is. We really appreciate it.